Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to writer and reporter Casey Parks about her new book, Diary of a Misfit, in which she chronicles what it was like coming out to her family in Louisiana and her relationship with her mother, and also her journey to understand the life of a trans man named Roy Hudgens, who'd once been her grandmother's best friend. It's part memoir, part journalistic saga, and it is entirely fascinating. You don't want to miss this. We're also going to get some music from the super talented singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Thunderstorm Artiste. He broke into the spotlight as a finalist on season 18 of The Voice. His vocal stylings have been described as warm and powerful, also ways that Livewire has been described. So don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How you doing? I'm doing well. Now, I'm looking at you over Zoom as we record this. Are you wearing camouflage? It looks like that kind of Duck Dynasty camouflage, but if you look closely, it's actually a medieval kind of the lady in the unicorn Oh, wow. That's prince. beautiful. That allows you to fit in seamlessly into a literature program at a major state college. That's right. That's right. Or any medievalist convention that happens to spring <laughs> up anywhere around it's here. public radio camo, let's be honest. <laughs> Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Oh, I think so. This is going to be a good one. I love these hints. Okay, this is where I quiz Elena on a place in the country where LiveWire is on the radio. You got to guess where I'm talking about. This city is known as the hot air ballooning capital of the world. Is it Albuquerque, New Mexico? My goodness gracious. It is Albuquerque, New Mexico. How did you know that? Well, when my friend Bonnie moved here, we have a little hot air ballooning festival in Albany, Oregon, and I invited her to it. And she said, I'm from Albuquerque, the hot air ballooning capital of the world. Your mind is a steel trap, my friend. That is the place I was talking about where we're on the radio on K-A-N-W. I could have also told you that it claims to be where the breakfast burrito was invented. (laughs) All right. Shout out to everybody listening in Albuquerque and all over the country. Should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's... Live 
This week, writer and reporter Casey Parks. Actually, I'm the, the worst natural journalist in my family. I'm very shy. I don't like talking to strangers or anybody. Um, <laughs> with music from Thunderstorm Artiste. I normally sing with my eyes closed because I allow my emotions to just kind of, kind of take me over. And so 30 seconds to the song, I'm like, oh, I need to open my eyes. And then I do, and they're all staring at me. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country. We've got a great show in store for you this week. This conversation that we had with Casey Parks about her book, Diary of a Misfit, was so memorable. Folks that were there when we recorded it live have gotten in touch and just mentioned to me in passing how much fun it was. So very excited to play that for everyone. And, of course, excited to provide the listener responses to our question this week. We asked the listeners, what is a mystery you're still trying to solve? This is tied into Casey's book. We're going to give those responses coming up in a few. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder that there is some good news still happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Ah, writing news. I love a good a good writing story. Gee, I wonder why. So here we have a story about a teenager in London named Dylan Brennan. Uh, Dylan is obviously in school, but wasn't in school for a significant part of 2020 and 2021 for reasons that I think you can guess. And like a lot of not just teenagers, but all folks, Dylan noticed that he was spending way too much time in front of screens, namely playing video games. And I've just got to say, if a teenager is realizing that he is spending way too much time playing video games, the hour total of that must have been really significant. That's like a six-year-old reporting that they got too much Halloween candy. Exactly. But guess what? Dylan did something about it. Not only did he do something about it, he did something that's very, very difficult to do. I can tell you uh, uh, on 10 years of personal experience, he wrote a book. What? He wrote a novel. He cha- uh, sort of channeled the authors that he loved the most, which include J.R.R. Tolkien and George R.R. R. Martin. And Heard it's of just, them? It's just now occurring to me that is George R.R. R. Martin have two R initials in his middle name as a Tolkien shout out? Or do you have to have two R's in your middle name to really crush it at that sort of, you know, fantasy style of writing. That's right. So then Daniel R.R. Brennan (laughs) decided to follow in their footsteps, and he made this book called Noble Betrayed. It's a big old gorgeous honker doorstop novel that he worked on for nine months. He named some of the characters after his teachers, and he modeled some of the action after life and news events and things that he was aware of in his hometown of London. I haven't read it yet, but I can read it now because this month it was just released on Amazon. I think he took advantage of some of the amazing self-publishing opportunities that are mm-hmm. around today that made blockbusters like The Martian happen, for example. Right. So he put it out. It has already received five-star reviews, not just from his home country of the United Kingdom, but from the USA, from Spain, from Australia. And um, he feels amazing. He can't wait to start another book. And I just love the idea that like, you know, like not only did he kind of make his life a little richer by finding a hobby that doesn't necessarily involve a screen, 
but he's done this really amazing accomplishment. It's really hard to put a novel together. And then he's made this gorgeous product that, by the way, if you have a Kindle Unlimited subscription, you can download for free right now. That is so impressive. You've written books, Elena. I've told people at parties that I'm going to try to write a book. (laughs) So we're kind of the same on this. I think we both know what an accomplishment it is for someone to actually finish something like this. All right, from a cool story about this young person in London to a story that kind of sounds apocryphal. So recently on the internet, somebody decided to write on Twitter the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. paid for Julia Roberts' birth is a little-known fact that sends me. That was what somebody wrote on Twitter. And then, of course, the rest of the internet said, that definitely sounds made up. Like, that would be wild if true, but that just seems like one of the many questionable things floating around cyberspace. Well, it turns out it is 100% true, Elena. Julia Roberts was born in Smyrna, Georgia. Now, maybe you know this because you're a Georgian, and so this is kind of local lore, but I'm just learning about it as a Yankee, right? So Julia Roberts' folks ran a theater school in Atlanta, and Dr. King and his wife, Coretta Scott King, were trying to find somewhere for their kids to go. And because, you know, of the time, they were having a really difficult time placing their kids in one of these programs. And Julia Roberts folks were like, absolutely, bring them on over. And they became uh, family friends. And Julia Roberts' parents, turns out running a theater school in Atlanta in that era, not the road to riches. Mm -mm. So they uh, did not have the money to pay for Julia Roberts' birth. And the Kings actually paid for her birth. This was confirmed in an interview that uh, Julia Roberts did with Gail King, no relation, and then also <laughs> um, some of the uh, descendants of Dr. King and Credit Scott King were confirming this online. So this is a real thing that a lot of us, not you, Elena, but people like me, are just figuring out. I had no idea, but the one thing I did know is my mother took lessons at that acting school. <gasps> With Yolanda King. So she, what? she she had two stories about the acting school. One was that the King kids were there taking classes with her. I think Yolanda King's like a year younger than my mother. And the other is that she like used to hang out with baby Julia Roberts, who uh, I think is like, I don't know, like 10 years old or younger than my mom. And my mother had two things to say about baby Julia Roberts. One was that she was blonde. And two <laughs> was that she was a very messy baby. I think she like watched the baby for a little bit. How did I pick this story off the <laughs> list when this is your lived experience, Elena? This is like you doing a story about sign painters in Seattle in the 1980s. I don't think she knew anything about that payment thing, though. I think my mom just was happy to take acting classes. And she remembers the Roberts family really struggling to make ends meet as well. Like it was, a, it was really obvious that they were like a paycheck to paycheck kind of a situation. So how amazing. It's an incredible story that turns out to be true. (laughs) Anyway, that right there. One of these cool stories on the internet actually being true is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's say hi to our first guest. She is a Portland-based reporter for The Washington Post, where she covers gender and family issues. She spent 10 years in rural Louisiana, which incidentally is also where she grew up, knocking on doors and researching the life of a country singer who had transfixed her grandmother back in in the olden days. And that research became her new book titled Diary of a Misfit, a memoir 
and a mystery. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Casey Parks, recorded in front of a live audience last month. Hello, Casey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here to talk about all the saddest moments of my life. (laughs) You know, this show contains multitudes. So I think we can cover the whole range of human experience. And I feel like this book actually really does. It is a really intense story of your life and of the life of of somebody else who you came to really know about. But I do think that there's moments of lightness and specificity. I don't know if I've read a book where people smoke more cigarettes. (laughs) I feel like many sentences start with, and then they picked up their Newport spirit. I did get an email from a friend of mine who I used to work with at the Oregonian, and she said, this book is making me want to smoke so bad. I love cigarettes. (laughs) I kind of want to, I sort of wanted to start this this conversation where the book actually starts. So you're in West Monroe, Louisiana. You're, you're back home from your freshman year of college, and your mom is in the bathroom crying her eyes out. Why? Well, I had kissed a girl, and it was awesome. I was not crying. I, you know, I, I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> um, and... I was so moved by that kiss. I I felt like, um, well, the week after that kiss, Easter Sunday came around, and I went home to go to church, and I don't know how many of y'all have been to evangelical churches, but the songs are designed to make you cry. Mm -hmm. Like, the chord progression is just like there's a a key that it turns in you and you cry, and so I started crying, and they were playing my favorite song, which was Shout to the Lord, and... um, Let the Earth... Yes. Oh, yeah. Or something. Yeah, and actually, this woman that had short hair was the soloist, and (laughs) I had had a long time crush on her. And actually, someone from my hometown just reached out to me, and she was like, "Cheryl, really?" And I was like, "She had short hair. That was literally that's all it took at that time." (laughs) Um, But so I started crying, and and my mom, you know, leaned over and was like, "Do you want to go to the altar?" And I said, "The altar's. I've tried. The altar's not going to fix me." And so I told her I was gay, and the pastor actually went in front of our whole church the next week and said, Satan's got a hold of Casey. And um, he prayed this prayer that is actually pretty clever. It, It was, save her and take her. And the idea is, like, I would ask forgiveness for this kiss and then die immediately so that I could go to heaven. And my dad, when the preacher prayed this, my dad was like, I'm sorry, did you just pray that my daughter would die? And uh, the preacher was like, well, you know, just on earth. Right. <laughs> but she'll live her forever. Treasures, her treasures are stored up in straight heaven. Oh, yeah. It'll be fine. Gonna, I'll be, you know, in the, on the roads of gold just praising yeah. Jesus all day long, yeah. which the older I get, the more I don't understand why that's heaven. Mm. Just you mean like, streets of gold? Yeah. No, the, the praising Jesus all day long, like, or praising God, like, so all day long, mm-hmm. all you do is tell this dude, you're awesome. <laughs> he doesn't sound insecure at all. No, like, I mean, hell, I've got to admit, I'm still scared of hell, but I don't know that heaven sounds much more fun. I, as a former evangelical kid myself, I would say uh, it's a dangerous thing to start pulling on the thread of that poorly knitted <laughs> Afghan sweater because it comes, comes apart pretty fast. 
This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening to an interview with Casey Parks from the Washington Post about her latest book, Diary of a Misfit. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. Much more with Casey in a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to an interview with Casey Parks talking about her book, Diary of a Misfit. We recorded this in front of a live audience in Portland, Oregon last month. Check it out. On this same day that that you told your mom you were gay and that she was having a real hard time dealing with that, your grandmother, who sounds like was a pretty no-nonsense person, first of all, sort of comes into the bathroom, says something pretty iconic, right, which was... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're allowed like, to cuss on the radio. Give it a shot. Uh, okay. <laughs> Y'all can bleep me. Um, and I actually am not that much of a cusser, but, you know, I am a journalist, so I do believe in accuracy. <laughs> um, my 
my, my mom was crying on the toilet, and my grandma stormed in. And it was a little tiny bath, about the size of this stool. And my grandma storms in, and she says, Rhonda Jean, that was my mom's name, um, life is a buffet. Some people eat hot dogs, and some people eat fish. <laughs> she likes women, and you need to get the f*** over it. <laughs> Still don't. I still off. I mean, this was 2002, so I've had 20 years to think about this, and I still like wonder. Did she know what she meant when she said right. fish? <laughs> did she pick two incredibly anatomically Resonance. germane yes. foods? <laughs> like were they just random? This is just a buffet, right. you know, just any old any old hot dog and fish. Right. Right. Um, I mean, at that time, you know. I, I had not really done that much with a girl. Like, I had seen the joy of lesbian sex in the sociology section of Barnes & Noble. <laughs> but I was afraid to open it. So right. uh, I wasn't sure if what she was saying was accurate or not. But <laughs> Well, it sounds like maybe part of your grandma having, a, to some degree, open mind about this was because of an experience that then she shared with you, I think later on, maybe even in that same day, about... Uh, a man that she had known growing up named Roy. What was so special about this relationship with Roy for her? So my grandma was a really tough person. She did not really speak with love very often. She just kind of spoke in declarations. And I had not spent a lot of time with her because of that, because I was kind of afraid of her. And she had, like, hair that just stuck straight up. And um, she kind of commanded me to sit at this broke-down table with her and she was just, you know, fumbling with the Virginia Slims, getting ready to smoke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big theme in the book. And she just looked at me in the eye and said, I just want to r- remind everyone, this is 2002, so the terminology was different, but um, she said, I grew up across the street from a woman who lived as a man. And I just was like, what? <laughs> I mean, the only gay people I knew, knew, uh, were Ellen DeGeneres and Elton John. <laughs> so, and I didn't know any trans people, so it just rocked my world that she did, that my grandma knew somebody. And I remember, like, the first thing I asked her was, well, do people tar and feather this person out in, t- out in the middle of town? Like, I was still, you know, uh, thinking Southern, I guess. But, um, and she just said no. Um, everybody loved Roy because he was a good Christian person. When did you get the idea that you wanted to go find out what Roy's life had been like? Well, she kind of commanded me to do it that day. <laughs> this was a really big day in your life. <laughs> like, this was, you must have been tired at the end of this day. This is a lot. She told me that at one point in her life, he had been the most important person to her. But she had lost touch with him. And... She told me that there were a bunch of mysteries, the primary one being that he had supposedly been kidnapped as a little girl and raised as a boy. And she said that the people who raised him, the mom, like on her deathbed, pulled my great-grandma down into this tub of alcohol where she was like trying to heal herself or something and had confessed. And so she wanted me to go solve that mystery and find out like what happened to Roy. And... 
you know, we're a dramatic lot. So uh, they like to smoke in what we called the carport. I think there's a different word for it out here, but just an enclosed garage. So I, I waited. She went out there. Um, she kind of gave me time to think about her commandment. And then I remember I walked into the carport. And in my mind, it's like very dramatic. Like I wade into the cigarette smoke <laughs> and just declared like, I will go to Del High and find out about Roy. And I, I mean, I was 18. I, I, I thought that I was a journalist because I had written one article about Salvation Army bell ringers. Uh-huh. <laughs> it made it on the front page of the Alexandria Daily Town Talk. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Don't hide your light under a bushel. <laughs> but I really didn't know how to be a journalist. In my mind, I was going to roll into Del High, strut into the library, snatch a reel of microfiche out of the box and just load it up and it was going to say baby stolen here's who he belonged to here's who stole him and you know here's your answers Casey um but first of all I didn't have a car (laughs) or money Uh, my parents gave me twenty dollars in a Popeye's bathroom for college so and I had used that already to buy coffees to see the girl that I had kissed so um (laughs) Well, so it took me a couple years to get money and a car and, and gumption. And, and I, so it, there was a couple years, and then my mom owed me for some things. Right, because I, I got to the part of the book where your mom, who knew a lot of people over in this town of Delhi, uh, spelled like Delhi, but pronounced Delhi. And that's a big theme in the South. Like, oh, yeah. actually, yeah. I just did the audio book. Uh, I recorded the audio book. And the people at Penguin Random House wrote back to me on a couple things and said, hey, you mispronounced Macon. <laughs> I was, it's, it's, it's supposed to sound like bacon. And I said, oh, no. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me introduce you to a few country songs off the Internet. <laughs> it's pronounced Mason here. Um, there's quite a few words. I mean, well, we're in Portland. We also like to mispronounce things Yeah, here. I'll never get used to cooch. <laughs> yeah. The street. Everything else is fine and normal. Um, you're, uh, the, Are you coming out right. on live wire? It's going to be a shock to my girlfriend who's sitting in the third row. Sorry, Bex. Um, you know, well, that's our agenda. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I can probably leave now if I've converted one. The, I, I was at the part of the book I was surprised that after your mom's really intense reaction to you coming out, that she was then kind of helping drive you over there and make some introductions to folks that she knew from her childhood. And then we get to the part of the book about why she owed you, which was pretty shocking, actually. She had opened a bunch of credit cards in your name and ran them up. Yeah, she basically stole $20,000 from me. At the time, I worked at the Oregonian, and I made $7.80 an hour. And my parents refused or couldn't I don't really know they did not pay back my credit so like half of my seven dollar and eighty an hour paycheck I think I made like 200 bucks a week and half of that went to creditors and yeah I basically guilted her into doing this of saying like if you're not going to pay off my credit card debts you're at least going to go talk to strangers with me seems like a good deal yeah yeah I mean and honestly my mother loved drama Mm -hmm. and she wasn't going to say no to it. I'm like, we're about to go investigate a kidnapping of a transgender man. Like, do you want to go? 
And she was good at it, right? Oh, like she's yeah. She's good at talking to people and, and sort of rattling cages and setting up. She was like your fixer. In yeah. A I actually, I'm the, the worst natural journalist in my family. I'm very shy. <laughs> I don't like talking to strangers or anybody. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I don't have like a lot of natural smarts. Um, I have, I can like read a lot and mm-hmm. do that. You know, when you don't talk to people, you can read a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of my family loves talking to people and they all are all like super street smart. Like I've one time spent like a year and a half trying to figure out how welfare worked. And then my cousin who just got out of prison, was like, Oh, you know, the ombudsman does this and this is her number. <laughs> and like, you know, just, they all know stuff. Right. Well, I want to, find out a little bit more about what this person Roy's life actually looked like because one of the things I noticed in the book because you're quoting people directly was nobody gets his pronouns right but also I didn't sense as a reader a lot of malice behind that from those particular people that are in the book it was an extremely complicated relationship with this person it didn't seem like he was run out of town but it didn't seem like he was respected in the way that we would hope someone would be respected You know, Roy lived at a time where transgender was not a geopolitical issue. There was no alliance defending freedom, like sending out model legislation to every state. He was not a force in this world. He was just the guy who mowed people's lawns and played the banjo on his porch. Mm. And I think in that way, like his life was in some ways easier than it might be for trans people now. I mean, in other ways it was much more difficult, but um, he could kind of exist without a, a concerted opposition against him. But people did know. Um, I think he, he didn't want people to know. He, he did take pains to present as a man, and he thought of himself. He, I mean, he was very pained by the idea of having to wear women's clothes and, or a woman's haircut. Um, but once people knew, especially once they thought that something had happened to make him that way, and people had all kind of different reasons. Like, there were some people who knew this kidnapping story that my grandma knew. Some people who thought a piece of tractor equipment had hit him on the head, and that is why. The most interesting one that I ever heard is someone told me that his family was too poor to afford starch for dresses, and that's why he had to live his entire life as a man. <laughs> and that just seems like a, a really long game for the lack yeah. of starch. I think, I think starch had fallen out of fashion yeah. by the time I, you know, I was around snooping. But yeah. um, 20 years in, you figured you'd have worked it out. Yeah. You'd have found a solution <laughs> to that issue. How much does starch cost, anyway? I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's a bank breaker, but... Uh, I feel like this book, by the way, we're talking to Casey Parks about her book, Diary of a Misfit, uh, which is uh, a reference to uh, a, a series of diaries that you were told uh, Roy had kept, which is a big kind of arc of this book, is you trying to get your hands on these diaries that he was keeping, um, which I want to talk about in a minute. But also the other big sort of arc of this book to me is your relationship with your mother, your mom is, uh, comes off as a really intriguing character, but somebody who's very flawed. You write about you know, um, her uh, addiction issues and her being physically abusive to you at times. You also write with a ton of love about her. Was it hard for you to put in the less uh, sort of great parts of her personality in the sense that you were worried people might get the wrong impression of her or, or your relationship? 
this is probably not the wisest way to write a book, but I really did not think about anyone reading it. I think that's a great way to write a book, <laughs> honestly, because then it's like, you know, the book that you want to write, and then you can think about the rest of the world, because the hardest part about a book is finishing it. Hmm. Well, and then after you turn it in, you have a whole year before it comes out. That's and then right. that's all you think about is what people are going to think. <laughs> that's when you run interference. Um, <laughs> but I mostly wrote it during the pandemic. And um, spoiler alert, my mother had recently died. And so I think I was also just trying to reckon with some of it. And, you know, right before this, I had gone to a, a master's program where everyone was obsessed with writing about the opioid epidemic, and none of it squared with what I had experienced. And so I think there was some of that where I was just like, I want to write what it's really like. Not everyone got hurt at the factory and is passed out at Walmart over the steering wheel waiting on Narcan. And so I just, I, I think I just wrote like the truest version I could. And like, and that includes about myself too. I mean, I think, um, I don't always look great in the book, but I just tried to report about everyone almost dispassionately, I guess, of just like, who are you in all the different ways that you are someone or who were you? And um, it's interesting that you say I was the, the physically abusive thing. I just was in therapy last week and my therapist said something about me being abused. And I was like, I wasn't abused. <laughs> and she was like, well, what do you think abuse is? I was like, only if you get punched in the head are you abused. And she was like, where did you come up with that definition? <laughs> And I was like, well, I was slapped in the head, but that's not the same thing. But, I mean, in the South, I do think it's like a really physically violent place and kind of biblically ordained to be that. You know, there's sure. the, the spare the rod verse. Um, so some of it, too, I think I, I didn't even realize how it might come off to other people because I still have, like, my Southern glasses on of thinking, like, well, this is normal. I didn't even know how much smoking there was. I was just like, well, people were smoking at that time, so. <laughs> I had a lot of experiences. I, am, I come from a very different part of the South, but uh, there were a couple of resonant moments that really rung true, which one of them was when the men are gone, the women put their nightgowns on, and they just <laughs> hang out in their nightgowns for the whole day. And I was just so happy that that crossed state lines from <laughs> Georgia to Louisiana to Mississippi. That's apparently the dress code oh, for yeah. when it's, there's no Y chromosomes in sight. This is how I know I'm gay. I don't have any nightgowns. <laughs> I just kind of go Winnie the Pooh at night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But when they would get in their nightgowns, I'd be like, I don't know what I'm supposed to put on. It's <laughs> a good Christmas gift idea for you. Uh, I don't want to give away too much from, from the end of the book, but there is a, I mean, it is a real mystery as to kind of what, what all went on for Roy and, and if people were taking care of him or were actually looking to you know, take advantage of him, etc., um, but I was really struck in, in reading some of the writings that you uncover of his, just like in his Bible and on the back of photos and stuff. I mean, he was a person who, who unfortunately seemed to have a pretty low opinion of himself. And you could understand why, because of all of the social pressure and things that were really going against him. But I guess I just wonder, what, what do you think he would make of all of this? I mean, he just lived a pretty quiet life and was a pretty humble person we're here on a stage in Portland, Oregon, recording this for hundreds of thousands of people to hear. Like, what do you think he would have made of it? I, I don't know if, if y'all all know this, but it took me 20 years to write this. And for a lot of those 20 years, I was I wondered, like, will he, would he want me to do this? And um, that was scary to me because I can't ask him. And 
there was even one time where like I was in the cemetery and I, I saw the woman who raised him tombstone and I was like trying to dig it out and I got bitten by a fire ant and I'm allergic to fire ants and my arm swelled up really big and I was like that was Roy telling me to get out and not do this um, but year 19 or 18 um, I got a poem that he wrote and the last few lines are like when I die no one is going to remember me and no one is going to miss me and I remember when I found that just like looking up and saying He's wrong. I think he is somebody who wanted to be known. I mean, he, he wrote songs and, and tried to sell them, and he played them. And I do think people write songs because they want to be known somehow or, like, they want to leave something behind. And so I think that he would be moved by it. But, I mean, it's certainly a long way from Delhi to to have his picture everywhere. I mean, his face was on the front of the New York Times book review and... Yeah in bookstores and it is wild to wrap my mind around and you know hopefully I'll still make it to heaven and I can ask him (laughs) (laughs) I feel like both of y'all are going to get there so he's already up there so Casey Parks thanks so much for coming on Livewire it's a great book that was Casey Parks right here on Livewire her book Diary of a Misfit is available now Hey, special thanks this week to Ann Wendland and John Lowry of Vancouver, Washington. Ann and John are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And that's something we are very thankful for because it is how we get to keep doing this week in and week out. So a big thanks to Ann and John for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week on the show, we like to ask our listeners a question kind of related to what we're talking about. This week, in relation to Casey Parks' book, we asked, what is a mystery that you're still trying to solve? Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Uh, What do you think about this short and sweet one-word response from Frank? The mystery that Frank is still trying to solve? Risotto. (laughs) (laughs) Like how to make it? Because it's really hard. I tried to make it one time. It feels like you're just, when you think that you've put enough chicken stock or whatever into the rice, double it. Come back in four hours and do more of it. Like it's a very, I feel like to build it is is involved. I know that friend of the show and MacArthur genius Hanif Abdurraqib is chasing the perfect risotto. That's good. Actually, there needs to be one thing that he is not totally good at yet because <laughs> he seems to be really good at a lot of things. I've mastered eating risotto. That's really my lane is going to the restaurant and ordering it and then eating all of it. It's so good. It is dense, though. It is like the event horizon of food. It is massively dense. There's some island like right off the coast of Venice that has a very famous risotto restaurant that has drawings on napkins on the wall in which folks like Picasso were so jonesing for this risotto and they didn't have enough money, so they paid (laughs) in sketches. I am going to that place. I keep getting stuck at the Venice Casino. I'm not actually kidding you, which is very cool. But I got I to gotta expand the next time I'm in Venice. Yeah, go there. Okay. All right, what's uh, something else that uh, is a mystery one of our listeners is still working on? I mean, this is a mystery to me as to 
why people would wonder this. It's from Colleen. <laughs> the mystery Colleen is trying to solve is whether you should brush your teeth before breakfast or after. Hmm. Now, why is that something that seems very obvious to you? You brush your teeth after you eat, right? Because then all the granules and stuff, right, you... Well, I brush my teeth first thing in the morning. So, see, I do think this might be a mystery or at least something that there's not unanimity on. Oh, I see. But you don't... But then if you have breakfast, you don't brush your teeth again. I might, depending on emotionally how I'm doing that day. Sometimes I self-soothe by brushing in the middle of the day or flossing. But I feel like the first thing you do in the morning is you brush your teeth to get ready to take on the day. It sounds like the listener is wondering if you might just wait like 20 minutes, eat your breakfast, and then do your brushing and kind of take care of, you know, the Malto meal or whatever. Uh, another mystery that one of our listeners is still trying to solve. Uh, this mystery, I believe, is for the younger generation, and it's from mm-hmm. Brit trying to solve every single one of Taylor Swift's Easter eggs. Oh, my goodness. That is a continually renewing resource. Yeah, you know, like, I I don't know any of them. I don't know. I know that Jake Gyllenhaal is maybe involved, but like... Mm -hmm, But that's like one or two albums ago. That's the thing. Every time you turn around, the internet is on fire because T-Swizz has dropped another album that's full of subtweets. Yeah. And I'm still working on like three, four. I'm trying to figure out what's going on with 1999 still. <laughs> it's kind of like like when you read James Joyce's Ulysses and there's a bunch of literary illusions or like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and you're like, I'm just reading the poem. Like that's the way I listen to Taylor Swift's music. I'm just like, nice sounds. To tell you just how hard of a time I'm having with it, I've just learned from our producers, the album is called 1989. Not 1999. (laughs) I have so much to learn about Taylor. All right, one last mystery that one of our listeners is trying to solve. Okay, (laughs) how about this one from Jill? The mystery Jill is trying to solve, why my date went to the bathroom and never came back. I mean, obviously he's a superhero. I don't know if this is a new thing or just because of like TikTok and other social media, I, as a completely outside observer, are more brought into it. But I feel like I see a lot of people posting like TikToks where they're sitting at a table in a restaurant with two you know, meals in front of them saying, my date went to the bathroom and it's been 45 minutes. Do you think that they're gone for good? This is not something that I remember from my younger days or my dating life. I'm wondering, is this a new development or are we just tracking it more closely because of like social media? And then you have to pay for them. I'm thinking about the heartbreak and the rejection of somebody ghosting on you at dinner. And you're thinking, do I have to tip? I mean, what's the tip on that now? Because I didn't even eat the other thing. Well, hopefully that uh, it is not happening to too many of our listeners out there. And thank you, by the way, to everyone who sent in their responses to our listener question. Uh, we've got a question for next week's show that we will reveal at the end of this episode. So stick around uh, for that. I'm Luke Burbank, by the way, here with Elena Passarello, the very economically minded Elena Passarello. <laughs> uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. Uh, when we come back, we're going to chat with Thunderstorm Artiste, and we're going to hear one of his amazing songs. So stay tuned for that. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. 
Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portalt.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, before we get to this week's musical guest, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, We're going to talk to Sylvia Vasquez-Lovato. She is the first openly gay woman to climb the Seven Summits. That's the highest mountain on each continent. Um, She's written an amazing book about that. Also, comedian Curtis Cook is going to stop by to explain why you might not want to wear a suit to Red Lobster. Plus, we're going to have music from the drive-by trucker's very own Patterson Hood. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know, what is your personal Mount Everest? Ah, okay. In honor of Sylvia's book. So if you have an answer to that question, send it in via Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, our musical guest this week broke into the spotlight as a finalist on season 18 of The Voice. None other than the John Legend described his tone as magical. Billboard has praised his earnest, uplifting presence. Since then, he's played with folks like Jack Johnson, uh, Booker T, and his music has been featured on the TV show Grey's Anatomy. He's also toured extensively with his brother, Ron Artiste II. Uh, This is our conversation with Thunderstorm Artiste, recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater last month. Welcome to the show. Oh, man, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, Okay, I understand that you uh, had a song that was recently featured on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, like recently, like Four days ago, man, it was like crazy. <laughs> did you I'm still like, buzzing? Did you have a watching party or anything? It was me, my five little nieces and nephew, and my brother and sister, and um, in California, actually on the Jack Johnson tour, we got to watch it. Like, and it was like the most special thing ever, man. Aww. What was happening yeah. when the song played? What was happening in the plot? Um, you know, I had to tell my nieces to look away. You know, it's like an open heart surgery. You know, <laughs> so I was like, okay, don't look. Now look. Don't look. Now look. I thought you were going to say like a steamy love right. scene. but it was. <laughs> I mean, it probably would have been better, you know. <laughs> so it was the soundtrack to a medical procedure? It was actually, the, it was like this most intense scene in the show, like for this episode. This is like the, what, the season opener, the first episode of season 19, I want to say. And um, it's this scene where it's like, this patient is going through this big heart surgery. The family is all around. They're all praying. And there's like four minutes of just like no dialogue. Wow. And just my song is like helping oh. set the mood for this oh thing. Oh my it's gosh. It's like super intense scene. It was, wow. It was, I was like, wow, getting chills watching it. So. Oh, that's so cool. Now, uh, we've had your brother, Ron, on the show a couple of times. He is so great. I know sort of famously that your family grew up on the North Shore of Oahu playing music together. That sounds like the most ideal childhood ever, was it? I mean, it was so easy. My school was playing music. You know, my recess was playing music. I mean, from a family of 11 kids, six boys and five girls. Um, I'm number seven. My parents both played music. We were all homeschooled. And it was just the most amazing time thinking of it, man. Just growing up, it's like sometimes I wish I can go back there and not worry about bills and, you know, just play music every day. It's the best thing. I'm surprised any of you left the home. I mean, I would just, I'd be, I'd be like 60, still there. 
Just, like North Shore of Oahu playing music. Just living in my mom's basement, you know, yeah. making music. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, when you were auditioning on The Voice, mm. uh, and for folks who don't know, there's this, it's the blind audition. So, you know, the judges have their backs to the person who's performing. And uh, you played the song Blackbird. Mm. And, like, that is not an easy song to play on guitar. It's some fairly intricate finger-picking. Were you nervous to play that song for those judges? First of all, I just want to acknowledge that, like, that's amazing that you know that, because it is a very difficult song. I spent an entire road trip in the back of a Toyota van trying to learn Blackbird. (laughs) I think it was even so, like, cool, like, nerve-wracking, yes, to answer your question, 100%. My um, stage coach was like, you know, try not to look at your hands and just look at people and don't look at your guitar. And I was like, she's like, it's not that important what you're doing. And I was like, do you know what's happening in this song? Uh, yeah. If you miss a note on that, it is very, very oh, apparent. Man. But you very. crushed it. And like, you're like, you're basically like 10 seconds into the song and it's like, like everyone's hitting their button to turn their chairs yeah. around. Like it was instantaneous. Yeah. It, then does a big relief go through you once that starts happening? No, because you still got a minute left to sing. <laughs> You're like, yes, I sealed the deal. But now if I mess up, they're going to be like, how do I turn this thing back around? But, uh, but no, I mean, the other fun thing about it is that the sound is added afterwards. So if you go back and you watch my episode and my performance, um, another thing my stagecoach told me was open your eyes. And so I normally sing with my eyes closed because I allow my emotions to just kind of, kind of take me over. Um, and so like... 30 seconds into the song, I'm like, oh, I need to open my eyes. And then I do. And they're all staring at me. And it's like, as far as just the back of this room right there. So they're not that far. And they're a lot closer. And they, you know, they look good. They're good. Wow. Good looking people. They're looking good. (laughs) But they're staring right at me, piercing in my soul, just focused. And I'm just like, oh, okay, don't freak out, Thunder. You know what I mean? And so you can hear this, like, extra vibrato just, like, sneak in. And um, and then I'm like, oh, I got to get through the rest of the song, you know? And, And it, man, it was like one of the best performances of my life. Thankful for that journey, that opportunity. And it came about in the craziest way. I didn't like audition for the show. They reached out to me and asked me to come and be on it. And oh, wow. it wasn't something that was in my plan for the year. And it was one of the best things that happened. And I met my wife and now I have a kid. What? Yeah. All that. So I was just Wait. like... <laughs> Sorry. You, you, you met your wife through the TV show The Voice? Technically, I was supposed to go on this long vacation. They made me fly back home to Hawaii to shoot some backstory stuff. And during that little trip that I wouldn't have been on, I met my wife. <gasps> and, and now you have three and a half month old Ezekiel. Yes. Who's here somewhere in the building. Yeah, he's right there in the back. Aww. See your bobbling. Oh my God. We, <laughs> all thanks to Blake Shelton. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Who would have thunk? <laughs> Okay, what song are we going to hear? So I'm going to do Stronger, the song you heard on Grey's Anatomy. Um, I'm super proud and happy about this song. This song is just about um, just a lot of things that I've been experiencing in my journey of being an artist and a musician and just the idea of my parents have always tried to instill just a, a sense of compass or truth in us. And so no matter just like what I encounter, it was just like, oh, mom, like I pray that I'll stay strong and just continue to carry on the things that you've taught me. So that's what the song is about. I hope you guys enjoy it. Wow. So call me 
overthinking maybe I could get over Or I could be stronger The fears in my mind His mama always told me I was meant to be light to the darkness But I feel like a cat Waiting for a flame Keep on getting stronger, keep on getting wiser, my dear. Don't give in to the forces, don't succumb to your fears. But oh, mama, I pray, oh, I pray that I'll stay strong. Oh, mama, I pray, oh, I pray that I'll stay strong. That was Thunderstorm Artis. His new single, Stronger, is available right now. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Casey Parks and Thunderstorm Artis. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tunvi Kumar. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Anne Wendland and John Lowry of Vancouver, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 